good day, and welcome to the Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting exclusively here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. Today, we're going to continue to discuss the latest science, political moves, business moves, and individual action related to climate change. As part of Covering Climate Now, a global initiative founded in 2019 by the Columbia Journalism Review and The Nation, along with The Guardian as a lead partner, to help address the urgent need for stronger climate coverage in the world. We're joining more than 400 newsrooms around the planet with a combined audience nearing 2 billion people. And we're glad that you've joined us. For our first article, a new analysis has found that the vast majority of fossil fuel reserves that are owned today by either countries or companies must remain in the ground if the climate crisis is to be ended. The research found that Of global coal reserves, 90%, and of oil and gas reserves, 60% could not be extracted. If there was just to be a 50-50 chance of keeping global heating below 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's just to make it 50-50 chance. 90% of coal must stay in the ground, 60% of oil and gas as well. The scientific study is the first such assessment on the planet and lays bare the huge disconnect between the Paris Agreement's climate goals and the actual expansion plans of the fossil fuel industry. Researchers describe the situation as absolutely desperate. The conclusions of the report are bleak for the fossil fuel industry, implying that Oil, gas, and coal production must have already peaked and will continue to decline every year beginning now. Governments and nations that are highly reliant on fossil fuel revenue, such as Saudi Arabia and Nigeria, are at especially high risk. A minister from one founding OPEC state recently warned of unrest and instability if their economies did not diversify in time. Virtually all unconventional oil or gas, such as that from fracking, which comes out of the United States, must remain in the ground, and no fossil fuels at all can be extracted from the Arctic. According to Professor Paul Eakins of the University College London, UK, and one of the research team, he said it is absolutely desperate. We are nowhere near the Paris target in terms of the fossil fuels people are planning to produce. He continued, whenever and wherever oil and gas is found, every government in the world, despite anything it may have said about the climate, tries to pump it out of the ground and into the atmosphere as quickly as possible. This will require private companies to write down their reserves, but for countries with nationalized oil companies, they just see a whole heap of their national wealth evaporating. But the positive side is that we actually can do it. We know clean electricity technologies can be deployed at scale very quickly when the policy mechanisms are put in place to do it. The researchers said that ensuring a fair transition for the many global workers in the fossil fuel industry was vital. This new research published in the journal Nature used a complex model of global energy use that 
actually prioritized pulling out of the ground fossil fuels that are the cheapest to extract, such as Saudi oil, in using up our planet's remaining carbon budget. Therefore, costly and highly polluting reserves, such as Canada's tar sands and Venezuelan oil, are then left in the ground in this model. Well, energy ministers in fossil fuel-rich countries have recently rejected suggestions that exploration and production of fossil fuels should actually decline. Sadly, in Australia, they said reports of coal's impending death are greatly exaggerated and its future is assured well beyond 2030. And in June, commenting on the International Energy Administration's Net Zero Energy Report, Saudi Arabia's Prince Abdulaziz said, I believe this is a sequel of the La La Land movie. Well, in further disappointing political news demonstrating how politicians tend to be the last responders to the climate crisis and are generally filled with rhetoric as opposed to actual action, in advance of this year's major international climate summit being held in Glasgow in November, a lot of countries have been re-upping and resubmitting their climate goals since the Paris Agreement in 2015. And sadly, these new goals fall woefully short. This is out of the Washington Post. It says, as climate pledges fall short, the UN predicts the globe could warm by a catastrophic 2.7 degrees Celsius. That's right. The new Glasgow commitments, if implemented, would result when a consequence well short of what is needed to curb global warming. It says here, the United Nations just warned last Friday that based on the most recent action plans submitted by 191 countries to curb greenhouse gas emissions, the planet is now on track to warm by more than 2.7 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, far above what world leaders have said is the acceptable upper limit of global warming. This would mean tens of millions of people losing their homes and possibly lives to rising seas, vast sections of permafrost lost, and the extinction of scores of animal species. The UN report said that it had received 86 brand new national plans for the climate, known as NDCs, which stands for Nationally Determined Contributions. So 86 new plans were submitted to the UN as of the end of July. However, nearly as many countries had still not stepped forward with new roadmaps. And the UN warned that if other nations, including China and India, did not submit new, more ambitious plans and continued on their current paths, greenhouse gas emissions would increase by 16% at the end of the decade, putting the planet on a trajectory to warm by 5 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. Many of the biggest polluting emitters on the planet, such as China, India, and Turkey, have yet to even formally commit to a new 2030 emissions reduction target. Equally worrying, Brazil and Mexico both put forward weaker emissions targets than the ones they submitted five years ago. And Russia said it could emit more in 2030 than it does now. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres in a statement said, the world is on a catastrophic pathway to 2.7 degrees of heating. 
he warned that there is a high risk of failure at the coming climate summit. He said it is clear that everyone must assume their responsibilities, stressing that the world's wealthiest countries must fulfill their long-standing pledge that they've never met to provide $100 billion every year to support developing countries who are trying to reduce their own emissions and prepare for a warmer world with more droughts and flooding that they didn't actually cause. The planet has already warmed by over 1.2 degrees Celsius since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Alok Sharma, the British government minister who will serve as president of the upcoming meeting in Glasgow, said in a statement, quote, This report is clear. Ambitious climate action can avoid the most devastating effects of climate change, but only if all nations act together. Those nations which have submitted new and ambitious climate plans are already bending the curve of emissions downwards. But without action from all countries, especially the biggest economies, these efforts risk being in vain. Well, one of the political solutions, especially here in the United States as well as in the UK, is to build more stuff. And Joe Biden's big infrastructure plan is his main spear to tackle the climate change crisis. However, building and constructing more things might not be always the best solution. George Monbiot is one of the world's leading journalists and part of covering climate now, constantly tackling and holding government's feet to the fire regarding the climate and the difference between their rhetoric and their action. This is a fascinating piece that he had written at the beginning of this month called We Can't Build Our Way Out of the Environmental Crisis. He says, dig for victory. This, repurposed from the Second World War, could be the slogan of our times. All over the world, governments are using the pandemic and the environmental crisis to justify a new splurge of infrastructure spending. In the U.S., Joe Biden's bipartisan infrastructure framework will, quote, make our economy more sustainable, resilient, and just. And it may just do some of that. In the UK, Boris Johnson's Build Back Better program will unite and level up the country under the banner of green growth. China's Belt and Road Project will bring the world together in hyper-connected harmony and prosperity. Sure, we need some new infrastructure. If people are to drive less, we need new public transportation links and safe cycling routes. We need better water treatment plants and recycling centers, new wind and solar power plants, and the power lines required to connect them to the grid. But we can no more build our way out of the environmental crisis than we can consume our way out of it. Why? Because new building is subject to the eight golden rules of government infrastructure procurement. Rule number one is that the primary purpose of new infrastructure is to enrich the people who commission or build it. Even when a public authority plans a new scheme for sensible reasons, first it must pass through a very important filter. Will this make money? for existing businesses. This is how, for example, plans to build a new hydrogen infrastructure in the UK appear to have been hijacked 
In August, the head of the UK's Hydrogen and Fuel Cell Association resigned in protest at the government's plans to promote hydrogen made from methane rather than producing it only from renewable electricity. He explained that the government's strategy locks the nation into fossil fuel use, and it seems to have the gas industry's fingerprints all over it. For the same reason, many of the beneficial projects in Biden's infrastructure framework and American jobs plan have been cut down or stripped out by Congress, leaving behind a catalog of pork barrel pointlessness. Much of the time, schemes are created and driven not by a well-intentioned public authority, but by the demands of industry. Their main purpose, making money, has to be fulfilled before anyone uses them. Only some projects have the secondary purpose of actually providing a public service. Worldwide, construction is the most corrupt of all industries, often dominated by local mafias and driven by massive kickbacks for politicians. If new infrastructure is to create any public benefit, it needs to be tightly and transparently regulated. Rule number two is that there is an inherent bias towards selecting projects with the worst possible value for money. As the economic geographer Bent Flyberg points out, the projects that are made to look best on paper are the projects that tend to amass the highest cost overruns and benefit shortfalls in reality. Government infrastructure decisions are routinely based on misinformation and delusional optimism. Rule number three is that the environmental benefits of new infrastructure schemes are routinely overstated, while the costs are underplayed. One reason for the environmental costs of new infrastructure is the massive footprint of concrete, whose carbon emissions may never be recouped. Another reason is the way that new building actually creates new demand. That's an explicit aim of the UK government's national infrastructure strategy and its 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution, but you don't solve a problem by making it bigger. Rule number four is that in countries with high levels of natural biodiversity, infrastructure is the major driver of habitat destruction. As a paper in the journal Trends in Ecology and Evolution shows, new infrastructure and the deforestation it causes is highly spatially contagious. In other words, one infrastructure scheme leads to another and then another expanding the frontier into crucial habitats. There is an almost perfect relationship between the proximity to a road and the number of forest fires. Roads, above all other factors, are tearing apart our global forests of the Amazon, the Congo, and Southeast Asia. Rule number five is that massive infrastructure schemes disproportionately affect territories belonging to indigenous people. For centuries, indigenous people's land has been treated as other people's frontiers. Indigenous groups fought long and hard to establish the global principle of free, prior, and informed consent, which is recognized by the UN in, in international law, but ignored 
almost everywhere. This rule applies to all kinds of infrastructure, even those we see as benign. A report by the Business and Human Rights Resource Center shows how even renewable energy schemes have sometimes resulted in driving a coach and horses right through indigenous people's rights. Rule number six is that greener infrastructure will produce a greener outcome only if it's accompanied by the deliberate retirement of existing infrastructure. In addressing the climate and ecological emergencies, the key issue is not just the new things we do, but the old things we stop doing. And while the UK government has plans to fund new rail links, bus services, and cycling lanes, it has no plans to retire any road or runway. On the contrary, it boasts about its record investment in strategic roads, and every major airport has plans for expansion. Rule number seven is that rich nations tend to be oversupplied with some types of infrastructure. One of the simplest cheapest, and most effective green policies is to set aside existing highway lanes for buses to create a fast, efficient intercity service. But where's the money for construction companies in just relabeling existing lanes? And lastly, rule number eight is that environmental change cannot be delivered only by infrastructure. To be effective, it needs to be accompanied by social change. Traveling less as well as traveling better, for example. We need to develop not only new railways and tram lines and wind farms and power lines, but a new way of life. But while governments and construction companies are happy to give us more of everything, the one thing we cannot have is less. The overarching rule, though, is this. If you want a greener world, resist the rising tide of concrete. That's George Monbiot. We can't build our way out of the environmental crisis. If you'd like to know what we can do, here is another interesting opinion piece written by a lead author of the IPCC's fourth and fifth assessments. The IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that have, has been releasing reports periodically for decades now. They just came out with their sixth assessment. This was written by Leslie Hughes, a professor of biology at Macquarie University and a spokesperson for the Climate Council of Australia. And again, she was a lead author on the IPCC's fourth and fifth assessments. Her piece is entitled, The Climate Crisis is an Accelerating Calamity of Our Own Making. So what would it take to turn things around? She says, imagine if scientists had just informed the world that there was a huge meteor heading our way that would likely wipe out life as we knew it. Or if the sun started doing really dangerous and frightening things that were likely to fry us, what would we do? Party like there was really no tomorrow? Or just crawl under a bed and wait out the inevitable? The silver lining to the climate change catastrophe is that it's not caused by a meteor or the sun. It's us. And because we've caused it, 
and we know how, we can fix it, or at least slow it down a lot. The latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a particularly heavy read. As an author on two of the previous IPCC assessments, I can relate firsthand to the extraordinary collective effort that goes into a report like this. Hundreds of scientists over many years synthesizing thousands of research papers describing the accelerating calamity of our own making. This report is more frightening than the last one, which was more frightening than the previous one, and so on. Sometimes I think, does the world really need another we told you so? But embedded in the gloom and doom of the latest tome is the glimmer of a hopeful message that there is no physical reason why we must accept the inevitable demise of life on the planet. If we can truly make strong and sustained reductions in emissions of CO2 and other greenhouse gases, and soon, we could see global temperatures stabilize in 20 to 30 years, that is, within most of our lifetimes. This would also greatly reduce the escalating risks from extreme climate events, the floods, fires, droughts, and heat waves. Awful as those impacts are, even they pale in comparison with the prospect that whole countries in the Pacific and Indian Oceans could disappear to rising water. So what would it take to turn things around? Every ton of CO2 emitted adds to global warming and is doing us harm. Every fraction of a degree matters. I'm reminded of a successful anti-smoking campaign from a few years ago that made the point that while every cigarette is doing terrible things to your body, as soon as you stop, things start to get better. It's not a perfect analogy, but if every molecule of emitted greenhouse gas is contributing to killing life on Earth, then every molecule that we avoid emitting is part of the solution. So here are my top 10 things to do. One, electrify everything, energy, transport, and manufacturing. Number two, power it all from renewables, obviously. Number three, remove all fossil fuel subsidies and use this money to transform the grid. Number four, stop or at least greatly reduce eating the products of methane belching cows, the farming of which is also responsible for most land clearing. Number five, plant trees, still the best way to draw down existing CO2 in the atmosphere. Number six, stop buying so much stuff. Everything has a carbon cost. Number seven, reuse, retain, recycle, you know the drill. Number eight, move your money out of banks, insurance companies, and superannuation funds that invest in fossil fuels. It only takes a few clicks. Number nine, give your time, your talent, or your treasure to organizations that are fighting the good fight. There is power in the collective. And number 10, most of all, ask yourself, 
Is my elected representative threatening the lives of my children and grandchildren, either by actively blocking climate action or by simply delaying in the hope that some uninvented technology will fall from the sky? You can help save the world with a pencil. Vote them out. Humans can be dumb, greedy, and selfish, but also smart, innovative, and caring. Desmond Tutu once exhorted, do your little bit of good where you are. It's those little bits of good put together that overwhelm the world. The IPCC report tells us we can, collectively, put our bits of good together and find a way out of this mess. That was Leslie Hughes, a professor of biology, spokesperson for the Climate Council of Australia, and lead author of the IPCC's previous fourth and fifth assessments. We'd like to end today's show telling you about climate cafes popping up around the world. Kathy Kilmer tried bringing up the climate crisis twice at a recent dinner party, but it didn't go well. Guests quickly turned the conversation to other topics. I just feel awful bringing it up, said Kilmer, a retired conservation group communications director from Denver, Colorado. And yet I feel like talking about it is absolutely key to getting people to understand it. That is why Kilmer attended a virtual climate cafe earlier this year, a meetup where talking about the climate crisis is not only encouraged, it is the main event. As the effects of climate change become harder to ignore and climate anxiety continues to rise, more and more such events are cropping up around the world for youth activists and retirees alike to process their climate angst. Said Rebecca Nestor, she's an Oxford-based organizational consultant who facilitated the recent cafe that Kilmer attended. Climate change is happening. It exists already, and much of what is coming is already baked in in terms of the science. So a lot of what I think we're going to need to do is to support people to acknowledge this and manage their feelings about it. While the exact origins of climate cafes are murky, leaders say they are loosely based on death cafes, which started in the UK as a space for people to talk about mortality over tea and pastries. Jess Pepper, who in 2015 started what may have been the first climate cafe in Scotland, said the idea came to her after she gave a local presentation on climate change. Attendees came up to her in the street afterwards asking what they could do. She said, it just dawned on me that people needed to be speaking with each other and not just in a one-off kind of session. Pepper says the climate cafes she has helped start around the UK are meant to be less formal than official activist groups and ideally more welcoming to people not already committed to climate advocacy. Some climate cafes, such as those held by Aberdeen Climate Action in Washington, serve as an informal outreach arm of an existing climate group, with each cafe bringing in guest speakers and connecting like-minded people. Well, Nestor starts off each of her cafes by having attendees do a show-and-tell with an object that connects them to the natural world. She said, typically, there might be one person who's an activist in the group, and the others are often in that state of, well, I'm the only one in my family who is worried about this at all, and so this is a massively important space for them. Well, Kilmer said she was astonished by how good she felt at the end of the first climate cafe she attended. She said, even though I had shed a lot of tears and gotten in touch with some powerful feelings, 
there was a sense of relief that I could share that with somebody. Dr. Sarah Jaquette Ray, program leader of the Environmental Studies Department at California's Humboldt State University and author of a book on climate anxiety, said making people feel less individualistic was key to combating inertia and despair around the climate emergency. She said a sense of the collective is probably the most important thing that will alleviate climate anxiety, but also mitigate climate change. So there you have it, climate cafes. Maybe it's something that you should consider starting. Well, that's all for today's climate report. Broadcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m., I'm Martin Webb. For more climate news and views in between broadcasts and post-show links to today's show, you can find the Climate Report page on Facebook. Feel free to also email climatereport at kvmr.org.